Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we're excited about today's episode. If you've missed any of the ones we've done so far in 2018 or even back into last year, make sure you find those. We've had a lot of great guests and we have a great one here today and looking forward to this discussion. But also make sure that you are subscribing to What's the Data Point on iTunes or whatever your podcast platform is and that you're spreading the word. You can reach us on social media. You can obviously tell your friends, family, coworkers, and so on about the podcast. So uh, if you like what we're doing, make sure that you tell people about it. Uh, But also feel free to reach out to us with feedback of all kinds on social media. I'm at TweetBenMax. Maria's at Maria Doulis. And without further ado, today we are joined by Mark Peters, the Commissioner of the New York City Department of Investigation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. And before we get to our discussion with Commissioner Peters, here's Maria with today's data point. Today's data point is 402, the projected headcount at the Department of Investigation at the end of the current fiscal year. This is double the amount of personnel in fiscal year 2013, the year prior to the start of the de Blasio administration. And there are personnel at other departments that report to the DOI commissioner as well. During this time period, DOI's budget has grown from $30.6 million to $48.2 million, an increase of 58%. Here to discuss the reasons behind this growth and the major investigations you've read about in the headlines is the department's commissioner, Mark Peters. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for being here with us. Uh, it's, it's been uh, definitely on my list to make sure to get a chance to talk to you at some point because of all the interesting work you've been doing now for into five years uh, as, as commissioner. But before we get into the, the work you've been doing more recently, tell listeners, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you did before you took this role. Sure. So I've been a commissioner of the Department of Investigation for a little over four years And before that, I was, among other things, the chief public corruption prosecutor for the New York State Attorney General. Uh, I ran something called the New York Liquidation Bureau, which is essentially the FDIC for insurance companies in New York, um, and was at the Attorney General's office and in various civil rights organizations doing all sorts of different uh, law enforcement work. And... You are, um, your position is one that the mayor nominates, but is really the only one or the only commissioner, I believe, other than sort of appointments to boards and things like that, that the city council has to approve. Um, Can you explain a little bit about why that is, what that process is, and how it sort of connects to DOI? Sure. So the Department of Investigation is actually one of the oldest law enforcement organizations in the state. And it serves as the independent inspector general for the city of New York. And because it is an independent entity uh, charged with rooting out both corruption, fraud, waste, and abuse within the city as a whole, there are all sorts of parts of the city charter, which is, as you know, the city's constitution designed to protect DOI's independence. And one of them is the fact that although the mayor nominates the commissioner of DOI, uh, that person has to be confirmed by the city council, and the person who has the job serves what's called an indefinite term, which means that person serves not through a particular administration, but an indefinite term. The mayor, in theory, can remove the commissioner by stating cause, and then there are hearings, but it's not 
it is designed to be more independent from other city institutions than most commissionerships. And so why do you think the mayor picked you for the position? What are the qualities you have that you think make you very good in this role? Um, well, I'd like to think that the mayor picked me because I've spent, um, I'd spent really the 20 odd years before that in law enforcement and in particular doing both law enforcement and anti-corruption work. I had been the head of public corruption prosecutions for the attorney general for a number of years. I had been the deputy chief of the Civil Rights Bureau. Um, at the time that the mayor nominated me and the council confirmed me, among the things that uh, was going to be immediately on the next commissioner's plate was creating an inspector general for the New York City Police Department. Um, under the charter, DOI serves as the inspector general for every city agency and therefore has always had the jurisdiction to be the inspector general for the police department, but for various historic reasons had never actually functioned as an IG for the police department. Um, shortly before uh, this mayor was elected, the city council passed a law that essentially said, you've always had the power to do this, now we are directing you that you must do this. And this came out of, as, as you may know, um, a lot of controversy and a lot of crisis involving stop and frisk. The number of stops in the city had shot up to something like 700,000. And my sense is that if we had always had an independent inspector general for the NYPD, there would have been an entity out there that could have said long before we got to the point of lawsuits, wait a minute, there's no good law enforcement basis for this many stops. Um, so in theory, what would the mechanism have been prior to this IG? Well, in theory, as I said, where, 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 where was the failing, to put it another way, right? You know, part of it is that institution, institutions are governed by a series of laws, but they are also governed by a series of practices and traditions. I mean, that's just true. DOI has been around for about 140 years. Um, for a variety of historic reasons that date back many, many administrations, many, many generations, DOI had never particularly served as the NYPD's IG and had never had the staffing to do so. I mean, remember, in order to serve as a competent inspector general for any city agency, you need two things. You need the legal authority, which DOI has always had, and you need the staffing to actually do the work. So even if my predecessors had said, we are the IG, we are going to do this, there wasn't the staffing for that. One of the first things that um, we did when, we, when I got here, one of the first things I negotiated with the mayor and the mayor agreed to was if we're going to be the IG for the police department, it has to be properly staffed. And the city agreed to almost 50 additional budget lines to hire a staff to do the work. Because without that, all the laws in the world saying you've got the authority to do it are meaningless if you don't have the troops to actually get the work done. So those are sort of the historic reasons that it hadn't happened before. And the mayor, to his credit, um, after appointing me, we had a series of meetings in which I said, look, in order to do this, we're going to need roughly 50 staff. Uh, the mayor agreed. We hired the staff. It took probably a good year just to get the staff hired. We did. Uh, brought on some really terrific people, including Phil Yor, who's the Inspector General. Um, and to give you an example of the way things 
work and the fact that you need an independent IG for all of these things. Um, just uh, two months ago, we issued a report on the NYPD's handling of sexual assault. And what the report found was something that a lot of advocates had known for years, much in the way that a lot of advocates had known for years that there were um, far too many stops without law enforcement justification. But what we found was that the NYPD is badly understaffing uh, its Special Victims Division, that although the number of cases has gone up in the last decade by 65%, the staffing has remained flat, such that there are only 67 detectives in the entire NYPD assigned to adult sex crimes. How's that for a data point, people? Mm -hmm. um, for over 5,000 cases. By contrast, there are only about 200-plus homicides a year being investigated, but 100 detectives. And we found in our investigation multiple internal documents that had never been made public that we were able to obtain, in which it was clear that everybody all the way up to the top ranks at the NYPD knew about this problem, but wasn't dealing with it. And in fact, uh, one of the results was that there was a policy that said um, acquaintance rape will be sent out for much of the investigation to precincts. So we essentially, the NYPD essentially relegated acquaintance rape to being sort of a second class investigation. And that's in comparison to stranger rape. In comparison to stranger rape. And the idea that we are not going to take acquaintance rape fully as seriously as stranger rape in 2018 is simply unacceptable. It's unacceptable in any year, come to think of it. But again, the difference between, you know, what not having an IG and having an IG is that we issued this report. Uh, at the end of June, the NYPD is, has to, by law, respond to our report. But already, the city council has held hearings. Earlier this week, the police commissioner uh, testified in front of the city council that at least some of the points that we had raised in our report were clearly correct and that some changes were clearly going to be made. And so, unlike stop and frisk, when there was no law enforcement entity out there to say, look, there's no good law enforcement basis for this. We had to wait for lawsuits. Here, we've got DOI. We were able to step in. We were able to point out the problem. Um, as I said, the NYPD already agreed on one of the points we made, which was that the facilities for doing these interviews were just horrific. Uh, where you're bringing victims. Where you're bringing victims. To talk to them, and, and they're just not suitable for those types of interviews and... Examination. Right. Exactly. What we found was that these, there, there weren't good private rooms in which to do this. People were often being brought in in front of the places where perpetrators might be. The rooms themselves were a mess. Uh, the NYPD this week in testimony before the council admitted, yes, DOI is right, and we are going to invest money to bring them up to DOI standard. A lot more has to be done. We are waiting for the NYPD's formal um, response at the end of June. But I think what's happened is you've seen we've sped up the process of getting at this problem um, without people having to go to court and use litigation. And it's, as an old civil rights lawyer, by the way, I've got nothing, there's nothing wrong with litigation, but it's not the most efficient way of changing things. Sure, sure. And, and the mayor and NYPD officials have also recognized that they might need to make some changes in staffing. I don't think they've well, he, they, actually, they did. They did say they were immediately adding some detectives, but then they haven't come out. 
I don't think with a final assessment, as you said, they're going to respond, right? But they've they've acknowledged that too that the personnel could. What they've acknowledged is that they need to look and see whether the personnel is adequate. I don't see how there is any rational good faith argument that it's not adequate. But I certainly think that the law says they get 90 days to respond to this. I certainly am happy that they're going to take that 90 days and sort of, I hope, calmly look at the problem and come up with a appropriate solution, which bluntly is going to have to include more staffing. You cannot say that 67 detectives dealing with over 5,000 cases is acceptable and it's okay to farm out the acquaintance rape cases to untrained people in the precincts, um, that's not the way that you demonstrate to victims that we're taking this seriously. And if you want to say to victims, we want you to come forward, then your first obligation is to make sure there are sufficient, properly trained staff ready to take those phone calls. Well, right. The other context here is that in an era where crime continues to decline, one area where there has been an uptick is in sexual assaults and rapes and the crime rates. That's and so, correct. I mean, I think what your investigation reveals At least is in that reports, right? In more people are right. reporting, I mean, we the, don't know. The sort of department has, has claimed it's a reporting issue, which may be true. Nevertheless, that's what the data show, sure. which would suggest then that there is some sort of shift in, in the department's priorities. But I guess my, my – and so I think this is very important work um, – but my question is sort of, okay, they'll go back, they'll address it. How does DOI, you know, what's DOI's expertise in saying, well, you've met an adequate staffing level for this, you know, particular type of crime versus anything else? I mean, why is that something that DOI should be able to um, have sway over rather than the commissioner who is, say, you know, looking at the department as a whole and more aware of how to um, deal with crime rates? So it's a great question. And the answer is on one level, it is clearly the case that individual agency commissioners know the policy of their agencies better than we do, and we're really quite clear in a lot of our cases um, that we're not going to tell agency commissioners how best to run their agencies. At the same time, there are basic rules and basic standards that everybody needs to meet. So the exact number, correct number of SVD detectives that's something that the police department needs to work out. But it is clear that 67 isn't enough. It is clear that saying we're not going to investigate acquaintance rape with the same vigor that we're investigating stranger rape is not acceptable. And so what you need to do is realize what DOI's role is to provide transparency and to demonstrate what we have now is not working. Yes, in the first instance, um, it's to the commissioners of the various other agencies to come up with a better solution. It's our job to both say it's not working and also to provide both the public and the city council and the agencies with the transparency of what's going on. So that, for example, the city council's held hearings on this issue. Um, the only way for the city council to hold really good, thoughtful hearings is for them to have something like our report. It was 163 pages because that's the baseline material that allows you to then ask questions of the NYPD. If you want to have the NYPD come in and testify and you want to ask them the hard questions about are you staffing this properly, the first thing you need is all of DOI's work telling you what's going on. I mean, the same thing goes on um, with NYCHA. 
So late last year, we did an investigation which revealed that not only was NYCHA not dealing with lead paint safety properly, but that they had falsified documents to the federal government claiming they were doing this properly. And this was not the first or even second time that we had done an investigation of NYCHA and found that NYCHA was both failing to deal with safety issues, whether it was lead paint or smoke detectors or elevator safety, um, and had not been keeping good records. So what we did is we issued a report after this investigation in which we said, look, NYCHA is failing to meet the standards that the city and the federal government have already set for lead safety. Right? In other words, mm -hmm. no, we're not experts on how much lead exposure is safe, but the city and the federal government have said, here are the rules. What we then do is come along and say, you're not following the rules. And in this case, by the way, not only are you not following the rules, but you're affirmatively misstating the facts to cover up that. That report led to a series of city council hearings. It led to a huge amount of public discussion. And NYCHA has now committed to make it, making a bunch of changes in the way it deals with these things. And there's been a leadership change at NYCHA that I think is directly linked to all this. But the other thing, just to point out, is part of the reason I think it's important to have a permanent, independent inspector general is we're not going anywhere. Our investigations into NYCHA aren't finished. We are continuing to look at this. And so that if NYCHA, having said they're going to deal with this, doesn't, we'll be back in six months and we'll be able to say to the council and the public and to journalists and to all of you, here's what really happened. Since you, you brought it up, from what you saw in those, I want to come back to, to the NYPD as well, but now, um, you, since you did move to NYCHA, from what you saw and the work and the lead paint was just one in a series of things that you've done mm -hmm. looking at NYCHA uh, investigations, reports, was that leadership change something that you wanted to see? Did you, from what you got, when you got under the hood and you saw what had been done from your law enforcement background and, and current law enforcement status, is that something you said, this, this definitely necessitates a leadership change? It, you know, one of the things I try to be really careful about, that we all try at DOI to be really careful about, is to respect the idea that commissioners in this city are appointed by the mayor, they report to the mayor, they serve at, you know, other than DOI, they serve at the pleasure of the mayor. And therefore, it's not, I don't believe it's really appropriate for the DOI commissioner to opine on either this person should stay or this person should go, and we work very hard to do so throughout the entire NYCHA set of reports. There was never a statement one way or the other. Um, clearly, NYCHA had some very real problems. Clearly, the idea that we cannot seem to get accurate information from NYCHA is a huge problem. And indeed, one of the things we said in the report on this is that there needs to be a monitor that, you know, a monitor that DOI knows is going to work that can give us accurate information about lead, about smoke detectors, about elevator safety. And we still believe that that broad monitorship is absolutely necessary. The NYCHA IG, your, your NYCHA inspector general can't be that person? Our NYCHA inspector general can supervise that person, but the kind of monitoring we're talking about requires huge number. I mean, it requires more people than, and, and some specialized people. In other words, one of the things DOI does, we run about 20 monitorships now. Um, 
And basically, these are things where you'll bring in, there are monitorship firms that can bring in people. For example, we did um, a big monitorship on some NYCHA construction a number of years ago called Bond B. And what you need for that are people who can actually go out to the sites and make sure if contractor X is billing us for removing 5,000 cubic feet of debris that I actually saw that many dumpsters get filled up. I use that example as one because one of the things we found in this particular monitorship was one of the companies doing this wasn't, in fact, hauling away the debris they claimed to, and we clawed back about $2.5 million for NYCHA that they had you know, paid this debris removal company. Um, there's simply not sufficient staff within the NYCHA IG to do this, and because these things tend to shift, it often makes more sense to bring in monitoring companies, although not always. Um, you know, the Department of Environmental Protection is doing this massive project to bring you know, a new water tunnel from upstate. And for that, instead of hiring a firm, DEP actually agreed to a bunch of extra budget lines for DOI to hire its own people and do the monitoring, because it was going to last for so long that it actually made more sense to make it a permanent thing. Right. I mean, you know, the night, I feel like we say this on every podcast, Ben, but it's like the NYCHA thing is just this huge it's thing. So we big, could spend yeah. the whole podcast talking about it. And clearly there's no excuse for falsifying records. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, lead is, there are real health implications with lead, right? Um, one worry, though, is that, you know, so we have an, a bureaucracy that we think is not working well, but also doesn't have sufficient resources to truly tackle the problems that it has. And so, uh, you know, one of my worries is that now we are, we have a, you know, a federal monitor that may be coming and federal plans and regulations. We're going to have a state emergency monitor do things. And so we're spending our public resources and time thinking about kind of overlaying regulation and oversight onto this bureaucracy instead of saying, Maybe we need to crack this thing open and do things radically different. You know, differently. Of course, this is not. <laughs> um, you know, DOI won't do that. But um, it, it's sort of the outcome of where this goes that um, leads into this this kind of political frenzy that feeds into this kind of like, well, we need a monitor. We need another monitor. Well, the feds will get a monitor. And now, you know, instead of focusing on the root causes and problems and, you know, getting realistic about the fact that we just don't have the public resources to tackle these issues, um, the, the attention gets, gets drawn up by these other things. I mean, I think the question raises a couple of different points, which is it's sort of helpful to disaggregate, mm -hmm. to use a nice data number, <laughs> data term. Mm -hmm. um, the first is resources. There is simply no doubt that the federal government for at least a decade, probably longer, has not paid its fair share to NYCHA and that there are huge problems afflicting NYCHA that can only be solved when the federal government pays its fair share. If you really want to deal with the problem of mold in NYCHA apartments, you need to fix the roofs that are leaking because they are way past you know, their expiration date, as right. it were. Mm -hmm. The only way you're going to fix that is if the federal government pays the billions of dollars it will cost to fix it. No amount of better management or anything else the city can do is going to fix that unless the federal government pays its fair share. And indeed, one of the things you'll see, you'll notice is DOI has not spent a lot of time criticizing NYCHA or investigating issues of NYCHA that are related to that kind of funding because telling NYCHA that you need the money is 
true, but they know that. We all know that. Mm -hmm. um, and we do not have oversight authority over the federal government. Um, but at the same time, there are also areas of NYCHA that are not related to funding. For example, basic um, you know, lead, elevator safety, um, smoke detectors, that kind of stuff is not necessarily related to funding. Um, to, you know, it's related to making sure that management does things right. Uh, indeed, you can actually argue that by falsifying the documents saying they were doing the lead testing, they actually made it harder to get federal funding because if NYCHA several years ago had stood up and said, we don't have the money to do the lead testing, and so children are being put at risk, and you federal government need to know that, there, there might have been at least an argument of the federal government needs to at least put a little bit more money into paying for lead testing. But when you say everything's fine, then there's no public outcry for we need more funding. And also it's a lot harder. I mean, to your point, yes, I think multiple overlapping monitors is not um, the best way to go. And I think we would all be better served if everybody could get together and agree on one monitor. But also, if you don't, you know, if you falsify the lead forms, if you, as we found, falsify smoke detector forms, if elevator safety maintenance records aren't being kept correctly, then it's a lot harder to push back on the federal government, the state, everybody else to say, we don't need all these monitors. The best way, if you are running an agency, to make sure that you don't have tons of overlapping monitors is to get the basic blocking and tackling of running the agency right so that you can legitimately stand up and say, we don't need all these overlapping monitors. So um, we jumped right into NYPD. NYCHA, as you've mentioned, you, you know, DOI looks at every city agency. Um, I, I was looking at, and I'm looking at actually as we speak, the, the org chart for DOI, which is very interesting for folks that actually really want to get to know what the um, department looks like. And, you know, you have it broken down into different squads that have different agencies underneath their purview. Um, so you're looking at the whole city government. Right. And, and even beyond that, remember, we, we have jurisdiction over not only the city government, but over um, city government, city workers, companies that do business with the city or that are regulated by the city. So, for example, uh, just yesterday with uh, the Manhattan DA, we arrested um, a bunch of folks on a huge wage theft case. They stole close to $2 million um, from workers who were building, including some very big luxury buildings in Manhattan. The company, we did these arrests, we arrested all these folks. The company was not a city entity, but one of the things that DOI has jurisdiction over is the entire construction industry um, because that's an industry that's regulated by DOB. Interestingly enough, whenever there's a major construction accident, um, at the same time that the NYPD and the fire department get a notification, DOI's um, construction investigators get the same notification, so they are among the first responders out there to see was this an accident that was caused um, by a failure to follow the various DOB regulations, We've actually done in the last two years three manslaughter cases where we've arrested general contractors for manslaughter because they didn't follow the various rules and people got killed. And there's now a construction fraud task force that looks at this 
because there have been a lot of construction deaths in the last few years as there's been a building boom. And what a number of people, what I and a number of prosecutors came to the conclusion of is if we want to make sure that people take the city's building rules seriously and protect worker safety, then when they don't, there have to be consequences beyond fines. And so in three cases, we've now arrested and prosecuted you know, general managers for manslaughter. Do you know, uh, off the top of your head here, do you know in those three instances whether those were union or non-union sites? Because that's been a big piece of the controversy is that I believe most of the work site, construction work site deaths that have occurred have been on non-union job sites, and there's been all this push and pull about uh, more regulations around training and and things of that nature. If there if there you know there's certain union rules that will lead to more safety, and then there's certain questions about regulations of non-union sites. Um, I don't offhand know in each of those instances whether they were union or non-union sites. The point about safety training is incredibly important, and indeed, one of the things that came out of some of these cases that we've done with both um, the Manhattan DA and the Brooklyn DA is that we found that there are huge numbers of workers who are not getting proper training and who are often being pushed into buying what are called fake OSHA cards. Um, in order to do a lot, of const- a lot of different construction jobs, you need to take a safety training course um, that's approved by OSHA, federal government, and you get an, what's called an OSHA safety card, which basically indicates, yes, you've you know, done the training. And DOI, along with other agencies, will periodically go out to construction sites and insist that everybody show us their OSHA cards to make sure that you're only hiring people who have the training. And in the course of this, and in the course of some of these prosecutions we did, we found that a lot of workers, particularly, um, frankly, recent uh, immigrants, were being, who had less ability to sort of fight back legally, um, were being pressured into buying fake OSHA cards so that you didn't have to lose the workers for the time it took to do the training. And in addition to doing criminal cases about this, we realized there needs to be better access to this training. And so working with the Manhattan District Attorney, we've done a series of these training classes, um, including at several, uh, at the, both the Ecuadorian and Mexican embassies, um, for workers, frequently immigrants, in which we've said, bring in your fake card. We will give you the entire training, essentially free, destroy your fake card and give you a legitimate card, no questions asked. You, know, you come in, you hand in the fake card, and we have now gotten over 2,000 fake cards off the street. We've provided training to over 2,000 workers who now, A, have the basic safety training so that they're operating safely, and two, these are now workers we have a relationship with which means we're in a better position now than we were before to hear about problems on construction sites. And that's something that we put real resources into and are going to keep doing. Yeah, that's important. Um, to circle back a little bit to where we started in terms of increased resources for the department, we talked about NYCHA a little bit. We talked about staffing up the NYPD IG so mm-hmm. it, can, it can make a significant contribution. Where else have you increased resources, um, and how have you set priorities generally for DOI? Sure, that that's uh, it's a great question, and, and look, a lot of what you know I spend time doing is thinking about where to put resources. We have about seven hundred uh, staff, including a little under two hundred peace officers who have arrest powers. Um, 
which sounds like a lot, but when you think about a city with you know, 350,000 um, employees, you're constantly juggling resources. So one place where we've gotten um, a chunk of additional resources is the Health and Hospitals Corporation. Um, uh, HHC, or H&H as it's now called, um, HHC used to have its own inspector general separate from DOI, and about two years, 18 months ago, um, everybody both at HHC and at City Hall and at DOI realized that wasn't working because one of the things that's become increasingly true is that everybody who's got an inspector general function, to the extent they are tightly coordinated together as one thing, they're much, much more efficient. And so the city actually came to us, City Hall came to us and said, and HHC came to us and said, we'd like you to take this over. We said, sure, but you need more staffing, and we agreed, and so there are a little over 50 staffers there doing this. And one of the first things we found, and we're really, you know, took some time just to build this thing, and we're starting to make some very good cases there, but we've arrested a bunch of people involved in what are called pill mill cases, in other words, doctors, um, improperly prescribing opiates um, to you know, people who are addicted. And one of the things we found, HHC has its own insurance company called Metro Plus. And Metro Plus, when it makes a profit, that money goes back to HHC to help fund operations. And what we found, and they're beginning to fix this because we're working with them, but what we found is when we created this IG's office, we found that Metro Plus didn't have proper anti-fraud protections in place. And so we did one case where the pill mill was really almost a front for insurance fraud because the doctors would take these folks who were hooked on pain pills. They'd agree to give them the pain pills if they'd sign forms saying that they'd you know, undergone a bunch of expensive testing that they could then bill Metro Plus for. And when we finally arrested the doctors and the other people involved in the scheme, it was something like $12 million that had been improperly billed to, bluntly stolen, from Metro Plus. And if you realize that there are going to be multiple schemes like this, suddenly you're talking about real money being drained away from city health care. And so we've put some real resources into this because if we can begin cracking down on it, not only are we helping crack down on a real problem in terms of opioid addiction, in and of itself important, but if some of this is being used as a way to defraud Metro Plus, we're also going to crack down on a problem that's bleeding millions of dollars away from the healthcare system. So that's a place we put a lot of resources. So um, we're talking with Mark Peters, the commissioner of the Department of Investigation. We'll probably have maybe, maybe five more minutes um, with you, Commissioner, and thanks again for joining uh, us. I do want to come back to the NYPD in a minute, but I, one of the other areas, and obviously we're talking about some of the most complex problem-plagued agencies and entities in city government here. Um, but one of the areas that you've also looked at quite a bit is the Department of Correction and things happening mostly on Rikers where, where most of the Department of Correction action happens. Um, can you give your sort of broad assessment from what you've looked at of um, the, the problems that you've seen with the Department of Correction and, and what happens with Rikers. And have you weighed in on whether you think it's, it's really um, 
you know, just the place and the, the structure and that, you know, have you weighed in on the closing Rikers from your angle? Uh, have you weighed in on that issue at all? Sure. So um, the answer is I have not weighed in on closing Rikers because that's a sort of broad policy decision that's best left to our elected officials, the mayor and the city council, and they've made a decision that closing Rikers is good policy. DOI's job is to help make sure that works. But I want to actually correct what's sort of a bit of a misconception in, in something you said, which is, well, the problems with the city jails are mostly at Rikers. Um, so obviously there are other facilities. There's one in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan. And we actually arrested some folks and issued a report earlier this year about contraband smuggling at both Brooklyn House and MDC, the Manhattan facility. And in addition to arresting officers who had been you know, essentially taking bribes to smuggle contraband into both um, Brooklyn House and MDC, we did an undercover investigation in which we were able to have some of our undercovers smuggle weapons, drugs, into Brooklyn House and MDC undetected and relatively easily. And what the investigation found, in addition to arresting people, which is important because the first way to crack down on illegal activity at Rikers is to arrest corrections officers who are doing this, and I think we've arrested something like 50 people since we've started looking at this, was we found that the problems at Rikers of contraband smuggling, of violence, et cetera, were every bit as prevalent at MDC and at Brooklyn House. So while people talk about this as a problem at Rikers, and rightfully so, it's important to understand that all of the problems we're seeing at Rikers are every bit as prevalent in the city's two main borough Facilities, which is a cautionary note as the city moves in whatever the next phase of the of the their jail plan. Absolutely, and as I said, look, the the city council and the mayor um, make policy. Their elected officials they make policy. They've decided that this is the way to go, and, and we're going to do everything we can to make it successful. But part of making it successful is pointing out that, in and of itself, taking Rikers and moving it to borough facilities of itself is not gonna solve the problems of violence and contraband smuggling that we're seeing. And so as we go forward with the planning, as I said at the beginning of this um, talk, part of our job is to make sure that everybody, city hall, the city council, the media, the public, have good and full transparent information what's going on. Part of what we need to understand is that the simple act of breaking up Rikers and putting it in borough facilities without more is not going to solve some of these problems, which means as we plan for this, we need to continue planning for how do we deal with security and mental health and contraband smuggling. As I said, we've now arrested something like 50 officers and staff to say nothing of, of you know, accomplices on the outside. Um, I don't see any reason to believe that that level of arrest is necessarily going to go down over the next year or so. Um, so we still have a huge amount of work that needs to be done to get at those problems. Uh, in, in coming back to the NYPD, um, I did want to note, I mean, I think it was important for us um, you know, to note, I think this is somewhat ancient history at this point, but when we were talking about sort of the process of your appointment and confirmation, you know, I do want to note that there had been a lot of discussion at that time because you had helped the mayor's campaign mm -hmm. about questions about independence that I think you've uh, pretty much put to bed pretty quickly. And I think the NYPD work 
has been maybe the biggest indication of that, if not NYCHA. But I did want to just sort of note that that was a lot of discussion in 2014 mm-hmm. um, that I don't think we've seen too much of in recent uh, years. I don't know if you want to comment on that or, or, or give your assessment of how you, you know, have approached your work to, to show your independence. There's Obviously, there's nothing more important than demonstrating and making sure people have confidence that DOI is independent. If you believe that government is capable of tackling and solving big problems in society, and I really do, and I'm confident that most of the leadership in the city really believes that, then the first thing you need to do is to make sure that people who fund the government, who support the government, who pay the taxes, who vote, have confidence that government is a good steward of these resources and can do these things fairly and efficiently and honestly. And the best way to do that, the best way to develop that support um, is to have an independent DOI that people genuinely believe um, is independent and is going to find the problems because, first of all, finding the problems helps fix them, and second of all, it means when DOI isn't finding a problem, there's some confidence from the public that maybe everything is okay. I mean, to get a little wonky here, you know, FDR in his second inaugural address talked about the importance of government in solving problems and said, but you can only do that with, quote, the justified support of the people. And then he pointed out that you only have that justified support when the people have, I think the phrase was, full information about what government's doing. And I think that, you know, those words in 1936 or 1937 by the time you delivered the inaugural, second inaugural are still true. And if we want government to have the justified support that it needs to do its work, then people need full information. And they need to believe that DOI is independent. So we've worked very hard to make sure to both be independent and make sure people have a level of confidence. I know it was something that was talked about quite honestly, quite a bit, you know, during my confirmation hearings. I'd like to believe that four years on, people are reasonably comfortable that we've been independent and that we will continue to be independent. So I think the NYPD is one of the biggest areas where the mayor has publicly pushed back on your work. He has questioned uh, accuracies, questioned uh, the, you know, methodology, um, for example, in the SVD investigation, questioning... um, I don't know if he said it exactly or others said not talking to the chief of detectives, Bob Boyce, at the time. He's now retired. Um, but you also issued, even back prior police commissioner, Bill Bratton, you issued a report for, in layman's terms, you know, sort of questioning the theories of broken windows policing um, that, w- that received a lot of pushback from the police commissioner and the mayor. How do you respond to that? How do you, how do you go about your work when the mayor is publicly questioning your, your uh, accuracy? Well... I'm really focused, all of us at DOI are really focused on the work. And, you know, I'm really lucky because I get to go to work every day with 700 law enforcement professionals who are solely focused on getting the work done, doing the investigations, finding out the facts. And I believe that if you do that, over time the facts will out. And I think, interestingly enough, on exactly the example you mentioned, the um, quality of life arrest report, So two years ago, we issued a report uh, that said that, among other things, that arrests for quality of life crimes, including marijuana possession, um, were not 
linked to decreasing violent crime. And so for whatever, A, for whatever reason you might have for arresting people for marijuana use, you shouldn't justify it by saying it's reducing violent crime because there's no evidence of it. And two, um, people of color were being disproportionately arrested even after you adjust for crime figures. At the time, there was a lot of pushback. Um, and the one recommendation we made, or one of the ones we made, is you need to do a comprehensive study of why this disproportionate arrests are going on. A lot of pushback, a lot of criticism, but we kept pushing at this. And lat earlier this week at a council hearing, the police commissioner said a couple of things. He said, one, I agree that arrests for marijuana are not driving down violent crime, so essentially accepting the basic thesis of our report. And two, I agree that we now need to do a study to see why there's this disproportionate um, impact. Now, would it be better if everybody had agreed on that two years earlier? Sure. But the point is, two years later, the NYPD, in fact, has accepted the basic premise of our report, has agreed to do the thing we think needs to be done. And part of the reason for having a permanent inspector general as opposed to you know, a commission or a study group or whatever, is that we keep pushing at this. So yes, in theory, it would be great if they accepted everything immediately. But when agencies don't, whether it's NYCHA or the NYPD, because we are independent, because we are not going anywhere, I, I think I have the best law enforcement job in the city of New York. I plan to be doing <laughs> this job for many, many years to come. We're not going anywhere. We keep looking at it, and over time, if you keep issuing reports that just get your facts right in a way that nobody can really dispute, if you keep arresting people and those arrests stand up, sooner or later the facts win out. You know, facts are stubborn things. <laughs> yes. John Adams. Sort of the but. mantra at CBC, we're in it for the long term as well, so we know what that's like. Though I wish I could arrest people sometimes. Maybe <laughs> I could get that. Yeah. That would be interesting. Um, I think fi final question as we wrap up here. So this has been a podcast that's been full of very interesting data points. Um, but, you know, one, one thing people often talk about with government is, you know, if you just root out waste, fraud, and abuse – you know, you could fix all the problems. And we say, well, really, there's not as much as you think. So the budget is $90 billion, right? On average, what would you say you, you know, recognize as the impact of this waste, fraud, and abuse? The total amount of waste, fraud, and abuse, as you said, is actually pretty small. Um, it's hard to quantify for a bunch of reasons, but it's right. pretty small. I think that there are a couple of reasons that it's important. And it's not because it's and, and the amount oh, of money... Oh, I'm not disputing the importance. Right. The, let's be clear. Yeah. Not disputing the importance. Very important. Right. But, but just your broad assessment. Broad of, assessment. Yeah. The total dollar figure is probably, you know, it's in a $90 billion budget. It is not huge. But, you know, going back to the idea that if you're going to ask people to give you their tax dollars to tackle problems, then you've got an obligation to assure people that that money's being used properly. And if you want, you know, the justified support of people to keep doing things, if you want to be able to say to people, we're going to have universal pre-K, which is a great thing, and you want public support for it, which you need in order to keep it going, then you also need people to believe it's being done right, which, by the way, um, you know, we spent a lot of time when it got set up working with the city on that. And it, in fact, 
has been a huge success. Mm-hmm. We gave we gave the rollout of PK, <laughs> UPK an innovation award for its success. We just explain just briefly what what that looked like. How how did you work with the city on that? Oh, what well, does when that the city like? was setting this up, you know, they were bringing huge numbers of different individuals, not for profits, into the process, and they had to. And, and Richard Bury did a really heroic job of, of building something that I think somebody said was like practically the equivalent of a school system the size of Cincinnati's on, you know, in a matter of months. And one of the things that we did is we put a bunch of staff in to help vet a lot of those folks being brought in to make sure that we were bringing in organizations and people who were, you know, essentially trustworthy. And, and it couldn't have happened without all the interagency collaboration and the sharing of data, which was kind of revolutionary at the time um, in Absolutely. terms of what government was doing for standard practice, hence the Innovation Award. <laughs> all right, uh, Commissioner Peers, we're going to have to leave it there. We could talk for probably another hour, but we, we've taken up plenty of your time, so thank you for joining us. And, um, you know, if folks want to see the recent reports or, or other things that DOI has been up to, they should obviously pop onto the website. Um, but uh, thank you for the time. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. Bye.